Romans 8, 1 through 13. There is, therefore now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. My name is Davis Mooney, and I'm one of the pastoral interns here at Central West End Church. And for the month of August, we have been in a series, on, a sermon series on the Holy Spirit. We felt like this would be an important series because many times, even pe- people who have been Christians for a long time don't quite fully understand who the Spirit is or what He does. Uh, I think if you asked a variety of people who are Christians those questions, who the Spirit is and what He does, you would get a variety of answers. But what we've started to see through this sermon series this month is that the Spirit is the person of God who empowers the people of God for the purposes of God. And that's what we're going to see in this passage today. But before we do, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would be with us. We thank you, that, we thank you for your word. We pray that you're, you're, you would be here, uh, the, the presence of your Spirit would be here as the word is preached. We pray that you would open our ears to hear, that you would open my mouth to speak, and that uh, the gospel would be proclaimed. We praise you and thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So this is a huge passage. Uh, All of the Bible points us to the gospel in its own way, but there are some passages that just do that in a little bit more of a clear way than others. Uh, I listened to a sermon on this passage a few weeks ago, and the pastor pointed out that 1 Chronicles, the first few chapters of 1 Chronicles, which is in the Old Testament, is just a list of names. And it shows us God's faithfulness throughout the generations, but not many of us are going to turn there for our quiet times. But Romans 8 is one of the richest, most beautiful passages in the whole Bible. I feel a little bit like now, like I'm um, golfing at Augusta National or singing at Carnegie Hall. There are just so many places that you can go with Romans 8. Uh, it's, It's really beautiful. But thankfully, we get to focus on one aspect of the passage today, and that's the Holy Spirit. Specifically, we're going to see how the Holy Spirit unites us to Christ. Now, we all want to be united to something that's larger than ourselves. And as we do so, we want that larger thing uh, that we unite ourselves to, to shape the way that we live. We want to find the truest version of ourselves in that larger thing. And don't just take that from me. Take it from former President Barack Obama. Back in 2008, he was addressing the graduates of Wesleyan University And he said, it is only when you hitch your wagon to something larger than yourself that you realize your true potential and discover the role that you'll play in writing the next great chapter in the American story. That's empowering. That larger thing that we want to be united to, it it matters. It shapes the way that we live and it shapes who we are. This can be very good or it can be bad. Uh, For instance, I went to college at NC State, and uh, so in a lot of ways, I am united to the success of the NC State football team, and which is great. When we win, uh, I'm happy and feel very successful. But here's the thing. We always start out the season with so much great potential, but like halfway through the season, we always crash and burn. And... So in a lot of ways, that's made me a very pessimistic person, uh, especially with regard to sports. The thing that we unite ourselves to, it often promises uh, to make us the truest version of ourselves, but we often come away disappointed. But what we're going to see in this passage is the ministry of the Spirit as he unites us to Christ and enables us to walk in his ways. My hope uh, and union with Christ through the Spirit is the only way that we find the truest version of ourselves, that we become the humans that we were created to be. But the challenge is that we don't get to decide what that truest version will be, and that's really scary. But my hope is that all of us, uh, those of us who are Christians and those of us who are still exploring the claims of Christ, will see and learn today the, the beauty and the absolute necessity of the Spirit as he unites us to Christ and enables us to walk in his ways. And so as we look at Romans 8, 1 through 13, uh, we're going to walk through kind of the big idea that we've been carrying through this sermon series and see how this passage shows us that the Holy Spirit is the person of God who empowers the people of God with the presence of God for the purposes of God. Say that one more time for you note takers. The Holy Spirit is the person of God who empowers the people of God with the presence of God for the purposes of God. So first we're going to see how the Holy Spirit is the person of God. And we see this all throughout the passage, but especially in verses 9 through 11. 
So Matt Creasy did a wonderful job in his great sermon two weeks ago of showing us how the Spirit is the person of God. So I won't spend too, too much time here. But what we saw is that there is one God who exists in three persons. There's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. These persons are distinct, yet they're so intimately bound up together in relationship that they are one God. And this is called the Trinity. And I get it. That's, that's kind of strange. That's a mystery. We don't, we don't fully comprehend it. But mystery there is not synonymous with a problem. It's not like a riddle to crack or a problem to solve. Uh, one of our professors at Covenant says that this is the type of mystery that is a reality to live within. That means that it is true. It's a reality. We don't exactly know how it's true, but it absolutely shapes the way that we live. So we saw in Matt's sermon on uh, John 14 and 16 how Jesus shows us the doctrine of the Trinity, how the Spirit is distinct from yet inseparable from God the Father and God the Son. And that's exactly what Paul does here in Romans 8. In fact, these two passages, John 14 and 16 and Romans 8, were some of the most important for the early church as they learned about and started to understand God's Trinitarian nature. Uh, The word Trinity is never used in the Bible, but it's passages like this that make it absolutely clear that God is fully one, yet exists in three persons. So in this passage, we see God the Father, we see God the Son, and we see God the Holy Spirit. And we also see different ways of referring to the Holy Spirit. So just in this passage, in these 13 verses, he's referred to as the Spirit, the Spirit of life, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, and the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead, which is a reference to the Father. So there's distinction, but there's also inseparableness in Paul's use of language here. Uh, And we see this especially in verses 9 through 10. So at the beginning of verses 9, at verse 9, he tells the Roman Christians, you are in the Spirit. But then in verse 10, he says, if Christ is in you. And the way that he's using if there is much less hypothetical, and it's much more indicative because he's talking to the Roman Christians. So it really could be translated as since. So first he says, you are in the Spirit, and then he says, Christ is in you. And and you are in the Spirit and you are in Christ. So which one is it? It's both. One commentator says that this shows us that Christ and the Spirit are so closely related in communicating to believers the benefits of salvation that Paul can move from one to the other almost unconsciously. The Spirit and Christ are distinct, yet they are inseparable as they dwell in the believer. And this is one of the first places where we see how the Spirit unites us to Christ. So Paul goes on to say, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But since Christ is in you, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. When we are in Christ, the Spirit is in us. The Spirit lives in us, and the Spirit dwells in us. There are some Christian traditions that say that when you become a Christian and you receive Christ, at some later time you receive the Spirit. But here Paul says, no, when you become a Christian, when you are in Christ, then you are also in the Spirit. If you are not in Christ, then you are not in the Spirit, and vice versa. But if you are in the Spirit, then you are in Christ. 
we see the inseparableness of Christ and the Spirit as the Spirit unites us to Christ. So we've seen that the Spirit is the person of God, and now we'll see that the Spirit empowers the people of God. But I cheated a little, a little bit, because and before we can talk about how the Spirit empowers the people of God, we've got to talk about how the Spirit enlivens the people of God. And I'm not using enliven there in its traditional sense. The Spirit doesn't just cheer us up. This, I'm using it in its literal sense. The Spirit makes us alive. And you can't be empowered unless you're alive, you've been enlivened. And the Spirit does both. Notice how many times Paul uses life or live in this passage. It's nine times. It's clear that there's a very close connection between the spirit and life. But there's death here too. So the framework that Paul sets up is that the spirit leads to life while the flesh leads to death. And we see this most clearly in verse 6 where Paul says, For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Of course, flesh there isn't literally skin and bone. Uh, there are other passages in the Bible that show that uh, the Bible actually has a very high view of our bodies. But the way that Paul is using flesh there is very similar to how sometimes we use the world. Uh, it is all that is characteristic of this life in its rebellion against God. So this doesn't just encompass uh, what, we, what we would think of as fleshly sins, like sexual sins or other sins that have to do with the body. No, this is chasing after things that are not God in order to find our identity and our empowerment. Chasing after something larger than ourselves that ultimately won't fill us. And Paul says that that leads to death, that that cannot please God. When we're in the flesh, there is nothing that we can do to gain our salvation or to justify ourselves before God. We are dead. I think, I think a lot of times when we're in the flesh, before we've been united uh, to, uh, to Christ by the Spirit, we're a little bit like the Black Knight in Monty Python, uh, who's just been defeated by King Arthur. So both of his legs and arms have been chopped off, and he's laying on the ground, and he yells at King Arthur, and he says, come back here. It's just a mere flesh wound. I think, I think sometimes we don't see the severity of our sin. But Paul says, it's not just a mere flesh wound. You are dead. You're, chasing, you're running from God, trying to find fulfillment elsewhere, and you need life. And it's the Spirit that gives that life. Paul says there are two types of people in the world. There are those who are dead because they are in the flesh and those who have life because they are in the spirit. And I think our culture doesn't like this distinction. I think it says that there, a lot of times it says that there are many ways to find life and we just have to find the way that's best for ourselves. It doesn't like that those who are in the flesh are dead and those who are in the, the spirit have life. But actually, there is extreme grace in this life and death distinction that Paul sets up here. And it all has to do with the law and with Christ. Now, unfortunately, we don't have too much time to go into the law. There are multiple sermons there, but we can summarize it briefly here. So essentially, God gave his sinful people in the Old Testament his law. As their creator, he gave the law to show his people how they were created to live. It was an instruction manual for life that was created to, to uh, point his people towards human flourishing. But his, his people were sinful. They couldn't live according to the law. They turned away from it. 
Like a gracious father, God had shown his people how they should live and, and pointed them toward flourishing, but, they, tur- but they, they turned away from it. They couldn't keep the law. They lived fleshly lives. They had turned away from God who had given them life, and this led to death. But here Paul says that the Spirit has made a way for life. In verse 10, he says to the Roman Christians, But if or since Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Our bodies will experience death because all of us are sinful and the effects of sin still exist in the world. But Paul says, if Christ is in you, then the spirit is life because of righteousness. It is only through Christ that we can be alive, that death is not lasting, that it will not have the last say, and that we can be resurrected to new life. That's where the extreme grace comes in. How does the Spirit enliven the people of God? He unites us to Christ, to the only place that life can be found. So the Spirit enlivens the people of God, but he enlivens them with the presence of God. The Spirit gives life as he unites the people of God to Christ, but how does that work? Well, the the key here is the first four verses of this passage. And Paul just kind of knocks down the door. Like, he just kind of blows right through the door. He has a way of doing that uh, with this first verse here. He says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul says with 100% assurance that those who are in Christ will not face condemnation. He goes on to explain this a little bit. So he says, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. So there's a couple of things to briefly unpack there. First, this phrase, God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. So the the problem, what what Paul means is not that the law was inadequate. We've seen that the law was perfect and it was given for human flourishing. But the problem was the flesh, which again is that umbrella term for rebellion against God. So like I said earlier, God gave the law for human flourishing, but because humanity sought to unite itself to other things to find fulfillment, they could not fulfill the law. And in doing this, they were condemned. The problem wasn't God or his law. It was human rebellion. So what could God do? He had lost his his sinful people. They had turned away from him and from his law. So what could he do? Well, he couldn't just abolish the law. He couldn't just throw it out because there wouldn't be any justice in that. And God is both perfectly just and perfectly merciful. And he also, he couldn't just abolish the law also because it would be a little bit like throwing out traffic laws overnight. It would lead to just utter chaos. So instead, what God did was he sent his son, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, who took on flesh and came to earth out of love for his sinful people. That's what Paul means by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin. Now, the word likeness there is a little bit tricky. Uh, There were multiple church councils in the early church in like the 100s to 300s AD to figure out what Paul means by likeness there. But basically what he means is that Jesus fully participates in the human condition. Uh, He took on flesh, which is so easily corrupted by sin, yet he had no sin. He didn't just look like or seem like he was human. No, he was both fully human and fully God. 
And that's another one of those mysteries that we live within. But Paul is saying that Jesus took on flesh, yet he was without sin. And further, Jesus perfectly fulfilled the law on our behalf. He lived the perfect life that humans were designed to live, yet couldn't because we had turned away from God. And he died for it. Even though he was innocent, he was nailed on the cross and died. And as he did, he served as the perfect and spotless sacrifice for us, for his sinful people. And all of the condemnation that we deserve for our rebellion against God was fully poured out on Christ on the cross. Yet through the Spirit, death couldn't hold Christ, and he was resurrected to new life. So Jesus fulfilled the law and achieved life for his sinful people. That's how the Spirit gives life as he unites us to Christ. He unites us to the only person who perfectly fulfilled the law on our behalf. And he unites us to the only person who achieved life through his perfect life, death, and resurrection. The pastor and theologian uh, Sinclair Ferguson says that uh, to be in Christ is to share in all that Christ has accomplished. And to be united to Christ by the Spirit means to share in his justification, sanctification, and glorification. Now, those are big, fancy theological terms, but basically what that means is that Christ has achieved eternal life for his people, and that the Spirit unites us to all that Christ has achieved as he comes to dwell in us. Now, it's really hard to illustrate union with Christ through the Spirit, because it's just such a particular and a a singular event, no illustration can fully do it justice. But I really like the way that Phil Douglas, who's one of the professors at Covenant Seminary, talks about union with Christ. He says it's like Team Hoyt, which is a father and son team who have completed 257 triathlons and six Ironmans together. It's pretty incredible. Uh, But this father and son team is made up of the father, Dick, who is a retired lieutenant colonel in the military, and his son, Rick, who was born with cerebral palsy. So one day, Rick came to his dad, and he asked his dad if he would push him in a wheelchair in a 5K race that was being held for one of his best friends who had recently become paralyzed. And after the race, he said, Dad, when I'm running, I feel like I'm not handicapped. And so Dick and Rick kept running together. For the triathlons and the Ironmans, uh, Dick will pull Rick in a little boat as he swims, which I think is like two and a half or three miles for an Ironman. And then uh, for the biking portion, Rick will sit in a seat on the front of the bike as they bike 127 miles together. And then, of of course, in the wheelchair portion, portion, Dick will push Rick in a wheelchair for a marathon. It's incredible. But everything that they finish, they finish together. Everything that Dick achieves, Rick achieves as well. And in 2008, uh, they were actually inducted into the, uh, uh, the Hall of Fame for the Ironman Hall of Fame. That's what union with Christ is like. Christ does it all, yet we graciously share in all of his achievements. Christ has fulfilled the law, so when we are united to him, the law is fulfilled in us. Christ has achieved eternal life, so we too share in that eternal life in him. So how do we apply this? I'll be a little bit brief here because the next point is largely application. But do you believe that Christ has achieved everything, that you can't do anything to add to your salvation? Do you believe that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ? 
uh, Tim Keller, the pastor, very wisely points out that Paul doesn't say, well, sometimes there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. No, condemnation does not exist for those who have been united to Christ by the Spirit. We can, we can be assured of our salvation as the Spirit unites us to Christ. The Spirit enlivens the people of God with the presence of God. And we are called to respond by walking in the purposes of God, which is our fourth point. So we talked earlier about how we all want to be united to something larger than ourselves, and we want that larger thing to shape us. So we've seen that the Spirit unites us to Christ, and now we get to see what are the purposes that the Spirit empowers us for. And this passage shows us that the Spirit empowers us for obedience and for mission. So first, obedience. We see this all throughout the passage, but we see it especially in verses 12 through 13. This is where Paul starts to take all of the beautiful and rich truth that he has stated in verses 1 through 11, and he begins to apply it to the day-to-day lives of the Roman Christians. And, And basically what he says is, you are in the Spirit, so don't live like you're in the flesh anymore. And, And again, flesh is that umbrella term for rebellion against God. He says, don't live according to the flesh. Don't turn away from God. You have been saved and you have been given life in Christ. But Paul understands that even after we have been saved and we are united to Christ, that we, we are still hindered by sin. And we've been delivered from the punishment of sin, which is separation from God. We've been delivered from that because we have the presence of God. But we still at times turn away from him. That's why Paul says, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And by deeds of the body there, he means uh, deeds worked out through the body under the influence of the flesh. So we're still influenced by the flesh, but we're called to put those deeds to death. and We're called to walk according to the Spirit and to obey God. But notice that Paul says that it is all by the Spirit. This is very specific language that he's using here. And there's a really interesting dynamic at play. So Christians are called to put the, to death the sinful fleshly deeds which still hinder us, but we're called to do so by the Spirit. The Spirit empowers us to turn from our rebellion against God and to turn back to Him. We are responsible for putting to death our sin yet after we are saved, but it is the Spirit who empowers us. And this putting to death of sin is neither simply by our own effort, nor is it simply by the Spirit. There's agency of both humans and the Spirit here. One commentator says that it is achieved by our constant living out the life placed within us by the Spirit who has taken up residence within. Once God has saved us from the condemnation of sin, has united us to Christ by the Spirit, We're called to respond by living the life that he's called us to live, to turn back to him in thankful response to all that he's done in our lives. So the Spirit empowers us for obedience, but he also empowers us for mission. The primary purpose of our putting to death of sin and obedience to God is that it is pleasing to God. Uh, It certainly cannot save us, but it is a response to what he has done in our lives but it's also for the purpose of mission. Uh, To see this, we have to go back to the law. And as we said, the law was given to God's people in the Old Testament for their flourishing. But the law also had a missional purpose. It was so that uh, 
as his people lived according to the law, the nations would see God's grace and mercy in the lives of his people. And we learn this way back in Deuteronomy, which is the fifth book of the Bible. So there, God gives the law to Moses, and Moses is called to deliver it to the Israelites, who were God's chosen people in the Old Testament. They're they're called to live according to the law in the promised land, which is the land that God has graciously given them. And as they do so, they're called to be a light to the nations there. So in Deuteronomy 4, 6 through 8, after Moses has given the commands of the law to the Israelites for the second time, uh, he says, Keep them and do them, for they will be your understanding and wisdom in the sight of the peoples, who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us? Whenever we call upon him. And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I have set before you today? God showed his people how they were created to live, and they were called to walk in his commandments so that other nations would see and say, Who is this righteous God who you serve? Michael Goheen, who's an author who uh, writes a lot on missions, says that these verses show that Israel is to be a holy people whose lives of justice, righteousness, mercy, and peace would demonstrate that the creator God lived among them. Israel's obedience leads to mission, to pointing other people to God. Now, ultimately, Israel failed in that task. Uh, Because they were weakened in the flesh, they couldn't do the law. That's why Jesus comes to perfectly fulfill the law on our behalf, because we couldn't do it. And he gathers a community of people who will walk in his ways and will be a light to the nations. That's what the church is called to be. It's a place where those who have been united to Christ by the Spirit walk in his ways, that demonstrates his love and his mercy to the nations, that is putting to death the deeds of the body and is walking according to the Spirit. And this is not so that the church can say, hey, look at us, look at how great we are, but it's so that the church can say, hey, look at our Savior, look how gracious and merciful he is, look how he has freed us from the bondage and condemnation of sin, and is empowering us to walk and to live as he created humans to live. God the Spirit empowers us to walk in God the Father's ways, to be the kind of humans that he created us to be, so that we can show others the glory of God the Son and all that he has achieved on our behalf. Now, I know that this is a massive task, uh, but we must remember that this is all by the Spirit. We are called to be participants in the grand, uh, gracious, and merciful story that God is writing in the world, but we can only do so by the power of the Spirit. So the Spirit is the person of God who enlivens the people of God with the presence of God for the purposes of God. As we conclude, I want to just kind of briefly summarize that again, summarize that where we've been. So we've seen that the Spirit is the person of God, that he is distinct yet inseparable from God the Father and God the Son, and that the Spirit unites us to Christ because he is so intimately bound up with with Christ Uh, That to say that Christ dwells in us is to say that the Spirit dwells in us when we we become Christians. And the Spirit enlivens the people of God as he unites them to Christ, which is the only place where life, life can truly be found. 
And the Spirit does this with the presence of God because it is only through union with Christ that we receive all that he achieved in his life, death, and resurrection on our behalf and as our grace-filled substitute. And the Spirit empowers us for the purposes of God, to put to death the lingering effects of sin in our life, to walk in God's ways, obeying him so that others can see his work in our lives. So the Spirit unites us to Christ, to that larger thing that we all strive for, and empowers us slowly to be the truest version of ourselves that we were created to be. We are saved by Christ, united to him by the Spirit, and empowered to walk in his ways as an opportunity to share the gospel, the good news of all that he has done on our behalf with those around us. That's a wonderful calling. Let's walk together in that calling today. Let's pray.